we've been looking at the, the right foundation for our lives, and we've had a number of weeks lately we've gotten off into other things. We had communion a few weeks ago, and we spent a, that Sunday focused on communion, and then we had a surprise guest, which was Rob Grinley, uh, two weeks ago, and then last week we ended up having another surprise guest. We had Dr. Uh, Dr. Nicole speak on Ebola. So it's, we're going to get back into the foundation and to establishing the foundation. If you recall, we were going through, I was talking about in Hebrews chapter 13, it says that there will come a time, Hebrews 12, there will come a time when God is going to shake the foundations of the earth. And by doing that, he's going to separate in our, from our, the earth and from our lives those things that can be shaken from those things that cannot be shaken. And those things that can be shaken are things God did not build into our lives. But those things which are not shaken are the things of heaven, the things that God has built into our lives. So when we go through a shaking, either it's in our personal life, whether it's your finances, your health, your family, whatever it is, that's not fun to go through, it's not, but it's a revealing to us of where we are. And when we begin to discover where we are, it's not a surprise to God. God already knows where we are. And God can only begin to work with us when we face where the reality, the truth of where we are and let God come in and begin to show us how to get from where we are to where we want us to be. Now, that's not just true of us individually, but that's true of us as a church. And that's what God is doing now in this day and age, not just here, but he's doing it in other churches. We've just come from a pastor's conference and talked to a number of pastors, and he heard teachers from Tony Cook was there and some others that we've known, uh, and they're speaking about the same thing. There's a, there's a shaking that's going on, but it's allowing God to adjust his church to where he wants it to be because the time is short, and there's things God, want, God wants to do, not what we want to do, what God wants to do. But in order for God to do that, in order for the power of God to flow, we want to see the power of God, but the problem is if you ever... ever take your dryer or your washing machine and you you know you load it up and the clothes gets too much on one side and it goes through that 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 was that that spin cycle and and it gets unbalanced and the washing machine will start shaking like that and that you see when it's going slowly through its normal cycles you don't notice that but the faster that tub goes the more it shows up when it's out of alignment and if it gets really bad it can actually move your your washing machine across the floor and come at you. And, and so the, we want the power of God released. But the problem is if we're not in right alignment and if things are not lined up right with God, that power is going to cause problems, not blessing. And so God makes those adjustments in our lives and those adjustments in the church so that he can make way for his power and the demonstration of his power because that's what the world needs. Paul said to the church at Corinth, I did not come to you in enticing words of man's wisdom, but I came to you in the demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit. That's when things get done. That's when people get saved. That's when things happen. And God wants to do that in our lives. And so that's what we're talking about. And we've looked at... That what that foundation is, 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 is making sure that it's the Word of God in our lives. What place does the Word of God have in our lives? We're going to look at a second aspect of that foundation this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is talking here to a church that needs some adjustments. And they're in division, they're in strife, they're very carnal, they're, very, they're envious, they're jealous. They're acting just like they were before they were saved. And Paul says in chapter 3, verse 5, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but were ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Paul started the church, I planted, 
Apollos, who was a teacher that came along later on. He watered. Why? But he added to what Paul had started. But God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. In other words, they're working together for one goal. So on a service on Sunday morning, I may be the one that stands before you, but there are many people working right now behind the scenes. You couldn't hear me if there were not someone, people in the sound booth operating that equipment. I can't do both of those things. There are people operating cameras, and there are people so that it's not just here, but it's going to be seen over the television waves, airwaves. Not only that, but, but you have some, many of you have children, and if they were all in here together, it would be harder to hear the word. So we have classes, not just to entertain the children, but to teach and prepare them and to sow in them to the next generation so that in their time, if Jesus tarries, they'll be able to sit in your place and take a place here and take their place in the body of Christ. So there are many things going on together and we're working together as one with one purpose. And by the way, we need more of you working together with that one purpose. And so Paul's talking, he says, I may have started it, and Apollos has come along and added to it, but we're one, because we're working under the direction of the head, one head, one head of the body. But we're one. Verse 8, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor, so we're not in competition with each other. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, you are God's building. So now he's changing the image to a building, and he says, According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another has built upon it. But let each one of you take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about what we build on that foundation. So the only solid foundation for a church, the only solid foundation for my life or your life is Jesus and nothing else. It's not a doctrine. We Doctrines are important. It's not a belief system. Correct beliefs are important. But it is faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus told Peter, when he asked him, well, who do, who do others say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the, they, some say that you're uh, uh, Elijah, some say that you're the great prophet. And then he said, well, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father is in heaven. And you shall now be called Peter. And on this rock, which is a different form of the word, so he's not saying on Peter. On this rock, what? On the revelation of who I am, I will build my church. On the rock, on the foundation of the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world for our sins, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. On that revelation and that revelation alone, on the person of who Jesus is, That is the only foundation that will stand, and that is the correct foundation for the church. What's happened is so many times it's very easy 
to get off your foundation and to wander. It's very easy to get off onto side issues and other things and forget what the foundation is and what the purpose is. And that's true of our life and that's true of the church. So the correct foundation for our lives, the only sure foundation is Jesus, is a relationship with Jesus, is a believing in the revelation of who He is and accepting that revelation into my life and into your life that He is the Savior. He is my Savior. He is the Son of God. He is God's gift to the world. And in Him alone can I place my trust. And that is the correct foundation for my life and for your life. But let's take a look at what that means. Let's take a look, and we've covered some of these things before, but I want to cover them from a little different angle today. Let's take a look at, if He is the foundation for my life, then let's take a look at Him and what His life was built on. So let's go to Luke chapter 2. We're going to cover some scriptures here, but that's okay. Luke chapter 2. It's a story when Jesus is 12 years old. And he has been admitted to the, as an adult into the synagogue. And they had, their practice was every year at the Feast of the Passover to come to Jerusalem. And they may have done that every year, but that was the practice. And they have come to celebrate the feast. And they came in large groups. They didn't just come, Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Their whole contingent from their village came, from their town came. And when the feast was over, they were on their way back and they were about three days into their journey back and they realized that Jesus wasn't with them. And you know, I used to think about that. Oh my goodness, that was basically child neglect. They forgot their kid. Until you realize it was kind of like when you bring our children into church or we go to the picnic or something. You know, I can trust my children to other people in the church because, you know, I know who they are. So they were off playing together and, you know, this was a contingent, a large contingent from town on their way back from, from Jerusalem. And, and so the, it dawned on them, wait a minute, we haven't seen Jesus. Where is he? Anybody seen him? They finally realized he's not there. So Mary and Joseph head back into Jerusalem and they find him in the temple sitting with the religious leaders, sharing with them, 12 years old, sharing with them. Now understand this about Jesus. So don't, this is going to confront the religious, ad, the religious teaching that some of you may have had. But Jesus had to grow in his awareness of who he was. When he was a little baby in the manger in Mary's arms, he didn't know he was the Messiah. He probably didn't know much of anything, and there wasn't a halo around his head. I don't care what pictures you've seen and paintings you see, there wasn't a halo around his head because everybody, when they brought him back home, would have realized he was the Son of God. And when Jesus was anointed by the Spirit in Luke chapter 4 and comes back into Jerusalem, they have a problem with who he is. So they didn't automatically know who he is. Well, he didn't automatically know who he was. He had to grow in that awareness of who he was. How did he discover that? By reading the Scriptures. And as he read them, it became something would go off inside of him especially when he got to Isaiah. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And that would ring a resonance inside of him. Something about himself would wait a minute. And as he would read the prophecies of who the Messiah was, there would be an awakening in him. Oh, that's me. Well, how do you find out who you are? The same way. It's by reading the Scriptures. 
And as you read the scriptures of who you are in Christ, and you read especially in the Gospels and in the New Testament epistles, and you read the verses about that you're a new creation in Christ, the Spirit of God inside of you wants to bear witness with that, Romans 8 says, by saying, that's you, that's you, that's you he's talking about, that's you he's talking about. Of course, if you don't read your scriptures, you don't give him the opportunity to do that. It's not going to just drop in you. You have to read it, and then he gives you giving him the food with which he can create that spiritual life in you. Because Jesus said, my words are spirit, and they are life. So as you read his words, as you read who he is, you discover who you are in Christ. So I'm saying that to you because at 12 years of age, he's beginning to have an awareness of who he is, enough to have confidence to begin to talk to on an equal level with the, with the priests of the temple. And so his parents now come and confront him. And they, I, I love the Bible because yeah, it may be Mary and it may be Joseph, but they were parents. And they're frantic. They can't find their son. I mean, imagine this. <laughs> and he's not just any son. He's God's son. They were entrusted to take care of the Messiah and they lost him. I mean, think about that a second. Because these were real people. It's not just, where's our boy? I mean, God put him in our hands and we lost him. And so they're frantic and they come back and they go back, retracing steps and they finally go into the temple and there he is with with the religious leaders. And so you can, it helps because you can understand some of what Mary says here. Luke chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 46. Now it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them, so Jesus was listening, both listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they, that's Mary and Joseph, saw him, they were amazed. And the mother said, his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Doesn't that sound like a mother? Why'd you do this to me? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Now, the New King James says business. Some other translations say work. And literally what it says in the Greek, I must be about my father's. And so Jesus already understood at this point that what he was here to do was his father's business. What he was here to do was to carry out, at 12 years of age, he already had an understanding of the purpose of his life. People get despondent, people get discouraged, people give up, people, people get depressed. Why? Because the f- most fundamental need, there's several fundamental needs a human being has for their life. And one of them is to have meaning, to have value and to have purpose. And I've heard Christians on television say, well, I go out there finding my purpose. Well, then they need to get saved. Because the moment you become a child of God, the moment you come into the family of God, you automatically have a purpose. You may not know what it is, but you have one because you are God's child, because you are part of His body. Every part of my body has a purpose. And every part of the body of Christ has a purpose. And until you discover that purpose and you begin to walk in that purpose, you will never be fulfilled because you're not doing what you were made to do. 
And that's what happens when our physical body, when there are parts of our body not doing anything, we get fat and flabby. And so much of the body of Christ in the United States is fat and flabby because we've taken in and taken in and taken in and taken in. We've been fed and fed and fed and we've not exercised based on what we've eaten spiritually. And so we'll move on from that. That was popular. All right. I must be about my father's business. Let's go to John chapter 4. We spent almost a year there talking about worship, but there were some other things we saw in there. John chapter 4. Story of the woman at the well. And we know because we've been spending time, we spent time in this, that Jesus is on his way through Samaria and he stops at this well because they're thirsty. It's about the middle of the day. There's, they've run out of food, so the disciples go down into the city of Samaria, Sychar, to buy food. And while they're away, Jesus is lay, sitting there alone, resting, and a woman comes up from the city to draw water. And Jesus engages her in this conversation that, again, we spent about a year on, talking about worship, teaching her about worship, and gradually revealing to her who, she, who, he, was, who he is. Because at first she just sees him as a man, a Jew sitting there, and he begins to speak to her, ask her for some water. She asked, thought that was strange that a Jew male would ask her for water. And then he says, Well, if you knew who I was, if you knew who I am, you would ask of me and I would give you living water. Well, that stirred up her curiosity. And the end of the discussion, she begins to realize that he's the Messiah. And when she realizes he's the Messiah, when she has a revelation of who he is, she can't sit still. She has to run down to the village and begin to tell others about him. And while she's running down to tell others, the disciples come back from looking for food. And they come to him. So what he's been doing is sharing who he is. He's been fulfilling his purpose. And she come, they come back, and we're going to look at verse 30. And when they went out of the city and came to him, in the meantime his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has he brought him anything? Has, has anybody brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. So my food, they're thinking about the cheeseburger and the fries. Jesus is thinking about something that satisfies and sustains eternally, not just for the next 20 minutes. Because if you noticed, after you've had that cheeseburger and fries, in a few hours you're hungry again. It doesn't last you. Just like Jesus talked about the living water, he says, if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. You won't need to keep coming back day after day after day because there's an inner water, there's, a, there's an inner thirst that you have in your soul that can only be satisfied one way, but once you drink of it, it will satisfy you. It becomes a, a well or a spring of water, a fountain of water, continually springing up in you to give you that satisfaction. It will become the source of water in you. Well, in the same way Jesus has explained to them, I have food to eat, something that sustains me, gives me energy, gives me life, satisfies that inner need that you don't know about. And that is to do the will of my Father and to finish His work. Some people want to do His will, but they don't want to finish the work. Notice He didn't say, having done the will. He said, to do the will and to finish the work. A lot of people start out on something, but they don't finish 
And it's not how well you start, it's how well you finish that counts. And Jesus is saying, what drives me, what motivates me, what gets me up in the morning, what causes me to get on my knees and pray, what, what motivates me to worship, what motivates me to deal with you staff that I got that are driving me up a wall, what, what, what motivates me to be patient with you, what motivates me to deal with the, the unbelief of the crowds, what motivates me every day is to do the will of my Father. See, ministry, whether it's full-time ministry that I'm called into and others on the staff, or whether it's the ministry of helps that you're called into, ministry is not about pleasing people. Now listen carefully. It's not even about serving people. Because if your main motive is to serve people, then they'll dictate what you do. Ministry is serving Jesus. And as I serve Jesus, that enables Him to serve people through me. So it's His serving through me that works. So my eyes have to be on Him and what He wants. Well, Jesus was doing the same thing. He was not here serving people. He was here serving His Father's will. And through that, His Father was able to minister and serve people while Jesus walked on the earth. And so Jesus is saying, what satisfies me, what sustains me, is that my purpose of my life, the foundation of my life, the reason, what I'm talking about foundation is why you're here. Why do you get up every morning? Why do you do what you do? Why do you come to church? Why, 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 do, you, why do you eat? Why do you live? Why do you, what is the purpose of your life? What is the purpose of this church? Why are we here? That's what the ultimate foundation is. And Jesus said, the reason I'm here, the reason I breathe, the reason I live, the reason I do everything is because I can, so that I can do the will of my Father and finish His work. Well, let's look at some other verses. Let's go over to John chapter four, uh, 5, excuse me, verse 30. Jesus said, I can do of myself nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who has sent me. Oh, if the church could get a hold of that. Because we're so good at judging. We're good at judging other Christians. We're good at judging the world. We're good at judging certain practices that the world develops. We're good at judging all those things. But Jesus is here saying the only right you have to judge, the only way you're going to judge rightly in God's eyes is if the foundation, the motive of your life and everything you do is to do His will. Because so many times the church is reacting to situations and judging things based on how it affects them. Certain people make us uncomfortable, so we judge them. Why? Because of how it affects me. Certain things are wrong. And it may be wrong, but the reason I judge it is because I don't, I don't like it. And Jesus said the only qualification the church has to judge anything is when it's committed to doing my Father's will. Because Jesus said that about Himself. On my own, I can do nothing. And the only reason my judgment is right is because the foundation of my life, the reason I live, the reason I judge, the reason I breathe, the reason I do miracles is to fulfill my Father's will, not my will. 
if we can just learn that one. John chapter 6, verse 38. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will. He knew why He was here. And everything He did, and this is where the foundation is so important, everything He did had to be based on why He was here. And we know why He came. His ultimate purpose in coming was to die on that cross, to be buried, to go into hell and to be raised from the dead. But everything He did before that was preparing a way. It had that with that in mind. He didn't just come down here and do miracles just as a sideline to take up His time until the appointed time for Him to die on the cross. Everything, there's a word in English which we which we use in one meaning only. And it's the word integrity. And we use that word integrity to mean being honest and straightforward. And that's true. It does have that meaning. But it means something even bigger than that. The word integrity means to be all the pieces put together in the right place, working for the right purpose. So when your body is healthy and it's functioning right, there's integrity within your body. Your ears are where they're supposed to be. Your toes are where they're supposed to be. Everything is where it's supposed to be doing and doing what it's supposed to be doing and nothing else. That's called integrity. It's being put together correctly. And the body of Christ is so much of the time dysfunctional because we're not walking in integrity. We're out there doing our own thing. Imagine if parts of your body just decided to do what it wanted to do on its own. It's called spasms. It's called dysfunctional. You couldn't stand up. Your your right leg would want to go this way. Your left leg would want to go this way. And that would get uncomfortable after a while. Your hand would start doing strange things because it doesn't want to sit still right now. And some of you have had to deal with neurological things where it's like that. And it, it affects how well you can function. Well, the body of Christ needs to function together as a whole, but it can never do that until it is founded and it committed to why it's here. And Jesus said of himself, I've only come to do my Father's will. So everything he did ultimately had as its purpose and foundation to complete the Father's will. To complete the Father's will. All right. Let's look over in John chapter 7. Verse 16, Jesus answered and said, My doctrine is not mine, but it's He who sent me. If anyone wills to do His will, the Father's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Whoever speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent me is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Now let's go back to verse 16. Jesus said, My doctrine is not my own, but it's His who sent me. So I'm not here teaching my own ideas. I'm here teaching my Father's doctrine. If anyone, that's talking to us, wills to do the Father's will, notice that's an act of your will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it's from God or not or whether I speak on my own authority. So Jesus is saying, the only way to know whether doctrine is correct or not is to be committed in your life to carrying out the Father's will. So if we've got our own agenda, our own purposes, or a church has its own agenda, 
or its own purposes that may be good. There may be nothing wrong with them, but they're not motivated by doing the Father's will. That, that disqualifies us from discerning what truth is. And that's very important in this day and age because Paul wrote to Timothy that in the last days many are going to be deceived and he's talking to believers carried off by all kinds of winds and doctrines and believe me, they're out there now. They're redefining who Christ is. They're redefining who the church is. There's a pastor out there and there are others that have come. Yet they believe in order to relate to people that they've got to act like the world. So he swears. Well, I'm doing what Paul said. Paul was all men to all things to all men that he by my, any means reached some. But I don't read in there bleeps when we're reading the Bible with Paul. So you've got to understand the underlying, you've got to be committed to God's, to doing God's will. Because if I'm not committed my life to doing God's will, if Christ said, if I'm not committed to doing His will, then I can be deceived. Because you and I are not able to handle the knowledge of good and evil any better than Adam and Eve did. We cannot handle the discernment of truth and error on our own out there. None of us are that smart or collectively that smart. It's only being founded on what Jesus was founded on. All right. And look at the next verse. He who speaks from himself or motivated by his own purposes seeks his own glory. What he's after is glory for himself. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. And let's go over to Matthew chapter 26. This is Jesus in the garden. Verse 36. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, I'm so glad this is in the Bible. I'm so glad God gives us an insight into what Jesus went through, that he was not just God, but he was human, that there were things he didn't want to do, that he just wasn't, you know, everything, every day. This is just so easy because I'm the Son of God. See, we can think that because I was raised in church to believe that. Well, Jesus is the Son of God, therefore, you know, of course he could do all those things. But you see, Jesus came as a prototype. You know what a prototype is? When they're going to design a new aircraft or a new, a new car, they'll often come up with a few sample models to test them out, and not just test them out, but to begin to show others what the next model is going to be like or a futuristic model is going to be like. Well, Jesus was a prototype of a born-again person. He laid aside, Philippians chapter 2 said, all the privilege that he had as the second person of the Godhead. When he was born in, in Bethlehem, he was born as a human being. He was different in that he did not have the tendency to sin the way your, your flesh and my flesh had. His flesh came from Mary, but his spirit being came from the Holy Spirit. That's why he was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. 
And, but he had to grow up and learn who he was, as we've said. And that's why the Bible says in Hebrews 4 that he was tempted in all ways as we were, yet without sin. Well, if, if, he, if it wasn't possible for him to sin, then it couldn't be temptation. I have never in my life been tempted to try to jump over the moon. I've never been tempted to try to jump over the Atlantic Ocean. It never entered my thought. Why? I know I can't do that. So it's not a temptation to me. So only things that I'm capable of, only things that, that, that I think is possible, they're the only things like that second piece of birthday cake last night, my grandson's birthday. You know, that was, that I knew I could eat. I knew I shouldn't, and I didn't. But I could be tempted by that. So if Jesus was tempted in all ways as you and I are, yet without sin, that means he was susceptible to temptation. And yet he didn't. He overcame every temptation so that when he went to that cross, he went as a righteous man under the law so that he could legally give us his righteousness, which he earned. The righteousness that was given to you when you came to Christ was a righteousness he earned. It wasn't just a freebie he got because of his position. And so Jesus came as a man and as God, tempted as always as we are. And yet he did not sin. So he had to struggle with his own will. So here we see him struggling. So he's sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He was asking him to pray him through this, help him and to pray. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, Oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, this responsibility, this thing I've got to go through. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And I like Matthew's account of this because three times he had to go through this. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. They weren't praying for him. They were sleeping. Then he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again a second time he went away and prayed, Oh, my father, if this cup will pass away from me unless I drink it, but your will be done. And he came and found them sleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same words. And he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping? Behold, the hour's at hand. Jesus three times had to reconsecrate himself to why he was here because he's now facing that final hour. And he was facing all that that meant, not just the pain and the physical agony, but what it was going to mean to have the sin of the world placed on him. What it was going to mean to have for the first time in his life the presence of God depart from him. What it was going to mean to die a sinner's death and to descend into hell. What that was going to mean. All of that. And he had to consecrate his will at that point. And I believe the only way he could do that is he'd been doing that all along. All along he'd been doing that. Well, all right. If the foundation for Jesus' life was a commitment to above everything else, to do the will of the Father. An understanding of that's why He is here. We saw in the beginning today that the foundation for the church and the foundation for my life is Jesus. So if the foundation for my life is Jesus, the foundation for this church is Jesus, then I've got to be committed to doing His will as He's committed to do the Father's will. So let's take a look at some scriptures. 
we're going to now look at what the correct foundation for our life is. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. We're in Matthew. Go to the other end of Matthew. Very, this, we know this so well that we often miss it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus says, they've asked him to teach them how to pray, and he said, pray in this manner, therefore. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's honoring God for who he is. The next thing he says we are to pray is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then he got into asking for their needs, for their needs to be supplied, for forgiveness, and all, all after that. But the foundation was this, acknowledging who he's talking to, which is our Father that's in heaven, honoring him for who he is, and then setting our will to be under his will. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That tells me that the commitment to his will must be the foundation for answered prayer. That when we're off there on our own, doing our own thing, you know, and you know, we just pay lip service to God, and then we get caught in a crack, as Pastor Sam used to say, and we cry out to God. God's merciful and gracious, but the more mature we get and the more we've walked with God, the more He expects of us to grow and act like a child of God instead of a baby in God, a child, a mature child of God. Because there's two different words in the Greek that refer to children. There's a Greek word technon, which refers to children, just a generic term for children. And then there's a Greek word huios, H-U-I-S-O-S, which refers to a child that's matured into a son. Not a kid, but a son. A maturing son who's taking on the responsibility of his father. It must be about my father's business. So, your kingdom come, your will be done. Let's go to Luke chapter 9. God is so faithful. I know we know that, but every time I see it, I still marvel. When, um, was it two Sundays ago, when Rob Grinley was here on a Sunday morning, again, those of you who were here, I wasn't planning on just something, just an opportunity opened up and worked out, and I just felt led to have him preach. And he preached on exactly where we're going without knowing that. Christopher Alam, when he was here several weeks before, without knowing where God's taking us, he preached on the same, he preached the same message. And we're going to look at it here. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, not just loses it, but for my sake, he will save it, his life. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and himself is destroyed or lost? The song we just heard when our special was about that. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and in the holy angels. And I tell you truly that some standing here shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to really be a follower of mine, 
then you have to do what I've done, I will do, which he took up his cross. And he said, in this, the Luke's account, he says daily. What's he talking about? Is he talking about physically being nailed to a cross? Well, there were some after him that were. Peter was nailed to a cross. It's believed Paul was nailed to a cross. But it's, it's something, in some ways, that's easier than what he's talking about. Because he's talking about daily making that commitment. Because taking up your cross means dying to yourself. And we're going to see this as we get into learning what the gospel is. The root of all sin is self. The bad things we do, lying, stealing, envying, strife, all those things are fruit of the sin. But the root of the sin is self. It's me. It's my mind. It's, it's my ego. It's wanting to be recognized. It's wanting to, it's wanting to... It's exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 3. That began then, and when you and I were born, we were born right into it. This cute little baby you've got, aren't they sweet and cuddly? You know, they're just so wonderful, yeah, but they're the most selfish things in the world. Their whole life revolves around them. And that's okay for a baby, but the process of maturing is learning to stop living for yourself and to be willing to live for others. But the problem is, we can't make that ultimate commitment on our own. I was praying about this one time, and the Lord showed me, He says, even Jesus couldn't nail Himself to the cross. But the cross is the instrument of dying to myself, to my will, to what I want, to my being here. And this is popular, this is so exciting, but it is! Because the root of all your trouble isn't the devil. The root of all your trouble is you. Jesus said at the end of his life, the destroyer is coming, but he has nothing in me. He could never find anything of me to get a hold of. Why? Because Jesus didn't die first on the cross. He died in Luke chapter 4 when he was taken by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And all along through his life and ministry, Satan would find opportunities to come at him and he could never get why. Why could Satan never get a hold of Jesus? Why could he never get some wiggle room in there and get a place in there? Because Jesus, every day, was committed. I'm here only to do my Father's will. That's the purpose of my life. And we want that and add all kinds of things on it. Or, or make room for other things in our life besides that. And say, oh my gosh, if I do that, then I won't be able to enjoy my life. Well, how well are you enjoying it now? Imagine a life where Satan can't get a hold of you. Imagine a life in perfect communion with God and the Father. Imagine a life with absolute perfect peace, the peace that passes understanding. There are amazing promises in the Bible about the peace that passes understanding. But Jesus said, my peace, my joy I have, my joy I give to you. Imagine walking in uninterrupted joy, uninterrupted peace. Jesus did. Why? Because the only thing his life was founded on was doing his Father's will. If you want to be my follower, you've got to take up your cross daily. Now, I'm not, we're going to talk about how to do that, but you've got to set that as an act of your will as your goal because you'll never go anywhere your will isn't set to go. Let's go over to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Now, the verse we love, and we're not going to read it, the verse we love is verse 17. It says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. Behold, all those new things are of God. But there's some verses before that. Let's look in verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he, that's Jesus, died for all, so that those who live, that's us, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So, just as Jesus lived his life to carry out the Father's will, because we belong to him, we're to live our life to carry out his will, and as we live to carry out his will, and he carries out the Father's will, the Father's will will be done on the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We are the body of Christ. And that means, you notice in your body, what part of you decides what's going to happen? Your, your head. Your head decided to come to church today. Now you may have had a habit of coming, that's good. But you made the decision with your mind, your head, to come to church. And every rest of part of you cooperated together to carry out the will that your head decided. And the example that the Bible gives of the church, Jesus is the head and the church is his body. So our only purpose as a church is to carry out the will of the head of the church. And what we've got to trust and believe that when we get into the center of his will, that's where the peace is. When we get in the center of his will, that's where the protection is. When we get in the center of his will, that's where the blessing is. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Guess where the shadow is? It's right up there with him. The Almighty can't be in Seekonk and we're in Timbuktu under his shadow. The shadow is right next to him. Talks about being under his wings. The images of him brooding in, bringing her chicks under the protection of her wings. Well, if you've got a chick out there looking at what the chick wants to do on its own, they're not under the protection of the wings. And that secret place is a commitment of our will to be based on, the, on his will, carrying out his will. Now, I'll talk to you later about how to get there. So don't feel condemned or, you know, discouraged. I can't do that. We'll deal with that. But we've got to see it, first of all. We've got to see the goal before we'll aim in it. We've got to see the goal. We've got to see what God's Word says and begin to hear that before the Spirit of God, who's the Spirit of unity, can bring us to that place. All right. Let's look at a few more before we get there. Romans chapter 12. That's back to the left. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, verse 1, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So they understood what you and I really have trouble understanding. They understood what a sacrifice was because they offered them. They would bring an animal to the priest or whoever it was at the temple, and that animal would be presented to them. 
Now, they may have had to buy the animal because they may have lived in Jerusalem, so they didn't have their own flock. So they would buy an animal or they'd bring their own animal, and they would offer that animal. The priest would then take it, slit its throat, drain the blood out, and then offer it in one of the types of sacrifices that was prescribed under the law of Moses. But it cost them something. A sacrifice, to be a sacrifice, has to cost something, or it's not a sacrifice. And so they would take a life of an animal, and it represented a sacrifice. It was a substitute for their own life. And Paul is using this example, says, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Not, you know, okay, what it means to sacrifice my life is we're all going to have an altar service next week where we all come and we slit each other's throats and, you know, pour the blood out. No. This is a daily sacrifice of putting my own will aside and committing to do God's will. Not just at the beginning of the day, but throughout the day. But it comes as a foundation of my life that my whole purpose of my life is a living sacrifice for Him. In other words, I'm not living my life for me, I'm living my life for Him and what He wants. And then verse 2 says, and, and, the, and by the way you do that is to not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we've got to begin to think differently. We've got to begin to think about our lives differently. We live in a culture where everything's based on my rights, my privileges, the rights of my body can determine whether that baby lives or not because it's not a baby as long as it's in my body, it's my body. And I can choose to do what on my body what I want to do with my body. And God gave you a body to do with what you want to do with it. But what He asks is that you present it to Him a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable which is our reasonable service. Reasonable in light of what? Reasonable in light of what He did. Because He made His body a sacrifice for you and me. That's the only reason we're in the body of Christ is because He made a sacrifice for you and I. Why? To carry out His Father's purpose. So it's learning to live my life based on the choice that the purpose of my life, the reason I live and exist is to carry out the will of Christ, the head of, the ch- the head of my church, of the, of the church, because he's committed to carry out the will of the Father. Let's look at another scripture. Romans chapter 14, verse 7. None of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose again and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. And then over to First Peter, Peter chapter 4. And there are many others we could look at. Verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. For he who has suffered... He's he's not talking about sickness and disease because Jesus didn't suffer sickness and disease. He's talking about persecution. Jesus was nailed to the cross because the religion... I mean, obviously it was God's will. But what motivated the people that nailed him to the cross was ultimately the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders of his day, the Pharisees, out of 
out of protection of their own interest. So they were not, the high priest was not serving God to carry out God's will, although in reality he did carry that out, but not because he planned to. But he was, they were looking out for their own self-interest. And when people persecute you, they're looking out for their own self-interest. They're not looking out for the interest of God. Because we saw where Jesus said, if you're committed to carry out the will of God, then you'll be able to discern what the truth is. But if you're not committed to carry out the will of God, then you can't discern clearly what the truth is because you're not lined up with the channel through which His will flows. And so Jesus is, Jesus is saying here, Peter, Peter is saying here, that just as Jesus suffered in the flesh, it wasn't sickness and disease, it was persecution. He was nailed to the cross by persecution because of who He was. Because he was the Son of God, the Son of Righteousness, he was the Messiah, and he came and he didn't meet what they wanted him to be. And he wouldn't change to be what they wanted him to be, and they wouldn't change what they wanted to line up with who he was, and so they had to get rid of him. Because he didn't line up with what they wanted, and we try to do the same thing. We want God to be who we want him to be. We want God to be the person, the God that we want him to be, that he won't change for us. And, when, and so persecution is motivated by that. So the suffering in the flesh that Peter's talking about here is persecution. And it can affect your physical flesh. Arm yourself also with the same mind, for he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of man, but for the will of God that he should live the rest of his time in the flesh on this earth, not for the lusts of man. Lust means doing what I want to do because that's what I want to do. Don't, don't think lust is just sexual, physical, or, or food. It's when I've got to have what I want. It's me is driving it. And it can be dressed up and look very spiritual. But it's selfish underneath. It's selfish underneath. And the ultimate core of selfishness as I'm, my, my purpose of my life is me, my welfare. And the danger of that is we can u- use religious things to do that and dress it up religious, dress it up so it's nice and spiritual and not realize that at the core of it, it's me. And when you begin to get into this arena, begin to pray this way, it's amazing. I won't talk about you. It's just been amazing how the Spirit of God will just shine light on certain motives of things. So, you know, why did you pray that? Well, because, why did you really pray? Because God, you know, God doesn't ask questions to get information because He already knows the answer. He asks questions because He wants to show you something you don't see. And I begin to see on my own how utterly self-centered I am. And we all are until Christ comes in and begins to change us. But His purpose in changing us is so that we will carry out the will of the Father. If we want Him to change us for our own benefit alone, then we're not coming underneath His purpose. And I think that's where the church has gotten to, is we, we want the blessings of God, we want the things God will do in our lives, and He does want to do those things, but we want them for the wrong motive. James says, you ask and you have not, because you, you have to not because you don't ask. But when you ask, 
you don't get because you ask amiss. You ask with the wrong motive because you're doing it to spend it on your selfish pleasures. And he goes on to call that spiritual adultery. Because spiritual adultery is when you get your needs satisfied, your desires satisfied, the way you want them satisfied, and not by getting them satisfied by carrying out his will. The most satisfying thing you'll ever do is to fulfill the will of Christ for your life. We'll go to one more scripture and then we'll close. Begin to sew you back up here. Because believe me, I've been cut open by this and will probably continue to be. Philippians chapter 3. Paul's talking in here about an attitude, about the mind of Christ, and then he goes and talks about his own journey. And he talks about how all the things he put his trust in and, and that he's laid them all aside, that he may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That sounds great. Then it gets into things that don't sound great. And the fellowship of his suffering that I may be conformed to his death. And then he goes on and shares, not that I've already attained it, but I press on towards the high calling of God that's in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on. And having said that, having set the standard and confessed that he's not there yet either, but he's pressing towards that goal. Verse 15. Well, let's go let's pick up verse 13. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended or succeeded yet, but one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind, reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God that's in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 15. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this same mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Over in chapter 2, verse 13, that's the verse I had put the wrong reference down. He says, For it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. I'm not going to turn there, but I may quote part of it. Ephesians chapter 3, he prays the same thing. He says that, he said that God would, praying for the church at Ephesus, that God would strengthen them by His Spirit with might, in their inner man so that Christ could dwell in them. The Holy Spirit's being prayed for that church is that He would strengthen them on the inside so that they could make that commitment. So God doesn't stand in heaven and say, look, you're all messed up because you're not fully committed to me. Go do that and come back. When you got yourself straightened out, when you've made that commitment, come back to me and then I can begin to deal with you. I can help you. No, no, God knows us. In fact, a lot of times God just lets you run on your own because some of you have been in church long enough and know enough scriptures and been through enough, we think we can do it. And so God says, okay, hot shot, go at it. And then when we fall on our face, bruise our knees and bloody our nose and we get up and finally give up, He says, all right, now I can work in you. Once you found out how well you can do on your own, now you know how much you need me to work in you. For it is God who is at work in you. 
Philippians 2.13. It's God who is at work in you. Why? How? Through the Holy Spirit. It's God who is at work in you, first of all, to will, to do His will. And then to give you the ability to do His will. But you've got to be willing to do that. And then He'll strengthen us by His Spirit in our inner man that Christ may be able to live in us, live fully in us, live His life through us. That being rooted and grounded in His love, we'll come to know with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know by experience the love of Christ that we could be filled with all of His fullness. Imagine that, the body of Christ filled with Christ. The body of Christ filled with the love of Christ. The body of Christ filled with the power of Christ. The, God, the body of Christ filled with the glory of Christ. But there's a disconnect between the body of Christ and the head of the body. The head's will to go one way and the body's trying to go all different kinds of ways on its own. And it's going to require what Ephesians 4 then talks about is the spirit of unity to bring us all back together to one heart and one mind and one voice and one purpose which is to do the will of Him who saved us. And that is the only foundation for the church. Christ is the foundation, but we can't have a foundation that's got a different will than the foundation. Amen?